in the world of freedom. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ich bin ein Berliner. This is Radio Goethe Magazine with Arndt Peltner. News and information from the heart of Europe. Hello and welcome to Radio Goethe Magazine. I'm Arndt Pelton. In today's program, I have a report from Rwanda for you and an interview about an exhibition remembering the fall of the Berlin Wall. So stay tuned. But first, the news. Radio Goethe Magazine. The news with Nina Paula. Berlin. Angela Merkel has been formally re-elected German Chancellor by the lower house of the German Parliament. The re-election came one month after she won a second term in office. Merkel, who has been Chancellor since 2005, will now lead a center-right coalition of her own Christian Democrats, the Bavarian Christian Social Union and the business-friendly Free Democrats. The September 27 vote changed politics in Germany. Merkel's grand coalition partners in the last government, the Social Democrats, were devastated by the election, seeing their representation in the Bundestag drop from 221 deputies to 146. Nürnberg. The mail-order retailer Quelle is set to close. Since 1927, Quelle in Fürth, near Nuremberg, has been an institution in Germany. Along with department store chain Karstadt, it is a high-profile victim of parent company Arcandos bankruptcy. 82 years, the mail-order retailer sold everything from furniture and laptops to perfume and sweaters. Now around 4,000 employees have to leave already in October. Another 4,000 will lose their jobs too. Arkandor filed for insolvency in June after its request for state aid was rejected. Ulm The German Protestant Church has elected its first female leader. Margot Kessmann is the new chairwoman. She said she wants to head a contemporary church that draws more people to the faith. And she is the first woman to lead Germany's 25 million Protestants. The 51-year-old Kessmann steps into the position previously held by Wolfgang Huber, who is going into retirement. She comes to the top job from Hannover, where she has been bishop for more than 10 years. Berlin U2 is to give a free concert at Berlin's Brandenburg Gate, the former symbol of Germany's division. The band wants to perform on November the 5th to mark the fall of the Berlin Wall 20 years ago. The actual anniversary of the fall of the wall is November 9. U2 has a close connection to the German capital, since members, relocated there in 1990, just after the wall fell, came up with a new sound, which was revealed on the album Achtung Baby in 1991. U2 recorded that album at the Hansa Studios, close to where the wall once stood. In September I went to Rwanda. It was my first trip to Africa and I didn't really know what to expect. Rwanda today is a country in change. They look ahead and have ambitious goals to become the Singapore or Dubai of Africa. But Rwanda today is still a country dealing with its past. Just 15 years ago, the small hilly country was place of a genocide. And the world looked away. Here's my first report from my trip to Rwanda. The Hotel de Milcolin became famous through the movie Hotel Rwanda. 
Currently, it's being renovated. Another construction site like so many others in booming Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. In the hotel garden I'm sitting across from Eugene Mosaidia, who received the City of Nuremberg's Human Rights Award in 2007. She says she was very surprised about the award because many people in her home country worked on reconciliation after the genocide in 1994. She doesn't want to talk more about the award in Nuremberg, rather she wants to focus on the things she's doing now. Oh, four hours, Greenwich Mean Time. The presidents of Rwanda and Burundi in Central Africa have been killed in a plane crash. But focusing on the present is not easy in a country that just 15 years ago resembled a slaughterhouse. After the Rwandan president's plane crashed on April the 6th, 1994, Rwanda became a bloodbath. Up to one million people, mostly Tutsis and moderate Hutus, were brutally murdered in just a hundred days. Tens of thousands of bloated corpses floated into Victoria Lake in the east. The thousands of Tutsis that fled to churches and chapels in the hope of finding a safe refuge were beaten, stabbed, shot and annihilated by unscrupulous and angry Hutu militias. The brutality knew no bounds. Even small children and babies weren't spared. They were thrown against walls until they died or in the hospital of Kadua they were held up by their legs like rabbits and slaughtered with a machete. Even today you can't escape these images in Rwanda. You meet people who tell you these gruesome stories and share their experiences from the time. And then, walking through Kigali and looking around at people, you ask yourself, what did this one, or that one, or that one over there do 15 years ago? Was he a perpetrator, a refugee? Did he watch or just look away? Eugenie Musaidia has dealt with this question intensively. She was living in Germany in 1994 when she got the news that her mother had been killed. I, as a Rwandan, I ask myself, I know the murderer of my mother. He's in prison, he got sentenced, but still I fear meeting him. But others here live next to each other. They get their water from the same water station, they go to church together. Life goes on, and I think, but this is just an assumption, that all of them, perpetrators and victims, lived through such horrible times, that they just want to live in peace. Maybe what happened here is a lesson to say never again. Eugenie Musaidia sits in the garden of the Hotel de Milcoline, zips on her African tea and describes what she feels with soft voice. She talks about her belief, her hopes, her conviction that the events of 1994 won't happen again. I don't think it will happen again, like I said before. No, I don't think it will happen again. It's not just hoping, there are also signs that this won't happen again. I think, and I'm quite sure, that it won't happen again. Or is it just hope? No, I believe it. Everyone wants peace. I think it won't happen again. Eugenie Musaidia is a devout woman who wants to help wherever she can. You can feel that, talking to her. 
Children's Center and the school project in Nianza, both of which she has worked on over the past years, have been completed. She says the children grew up, her work is done. Now she looks ahead and has found a new project with which to get involved. Viele die Vorgeschichte, das war letztes Jahr im März, war ein Team von Deutschland hier, um einen Film zu machen. A little background. Last year in March, a TV crew from Germany was here for a documentary. And we traveled all over the country and visited a prison in Gitarama as well. And there I saw a little girl in a red dress. I won't forget this. She was about three years old and just walked around there. I asked what this girl is doing there and was told she lives there with her mother who was sentenced. Meaning, incarcerated women who have small children have the children with them. The kids are locked up as well. She tries to knock on doors for support and money for the children's center on the grounds of the prison. She turns to UNICEF churches and other public providers in Germany because she believes that the children of Rwanda are the future of that country. The burden of the past and the hope of the future rests on their shoulders so that history will not repeat itself. If a child grows up in prison, that is kind of the first step towards the next genocide or the next brutality between the generations. Maybe if you want, we should visit it to see it for yourself. Eugenie Musaidir makes it possible. An appointment two days later at an office of the Interior Ministry opens the gates of the prison. Just an hour later, we are on our way to Gitarama, a small city just 40 kilometers west of Kigali. More than 8,000 prisoners are housed here, many of them for crimes committed during the genocide in the spring of 1994. The prison consists of several rundown houses, huts and structures behind a holy chain link fence with barbed wire on the top for no obvious reason. A friendly prison director is already waiting for us, serves drinks and describes the situation and the daily routine. The communication is in Kinyavanda, French and English. Eugenie Musaidia translates and explains things to me whenever language problems occur. I'm recording with a hidden microphone. And here, this is for Kamold. And here, this is the normal strafe. And then we're walking over to the women's block. A padlock is opened on a steel door to what looks like a storage hut. Suddenly, ten shaven women's heads are looking out. Eugenie Musaidia is joyfully greeted. I don't understand a word and just follow her into the darkness of the room. A shocking image. Three stories of wooden cots, which remind me of the barracks in concentration camps. Bags and towels are above these cots. The women look down at us from everywhere. Some are smiling, others are laughing out loud about the Muzungu, the white. Some are just looking away distraught. And there are children, small children, who are joyfully running towards Eugenie Musaidia. Behind the barrack is the courtyard, and above the door to the courtyard is a Barack Obama bag with this picture on it and the phrase, yes we can. The courtyard offers an even more disturbing image than the room behind me. Dozens and dozens of women are standing next to each other in this overcrowded space. 
old and young ones, all shaven. Most of them dressed in orange, some in pink. Orange means sentenced, pink stands for still waiting for the trial. A couple of women walk over to Eugenie Musaidia, her helpers, as she explains. They gather the children, taking them by their hands to the yard. Some women are reading the Bible, a group stands together and is singing. Women are talking to each other, laughing. It is loud, it is crowded, and yes, it is inhumane. Later I am told that the women in this block won't leave it at all during their detention. They remain there the entire time with 450 others living in misery. The children like to come along with us. They laugh and walk aside Eugenie Musaidia and her helpers in orange and pink. The first stop is a small building close by, where they stretch and sing a bit. Then they walk towards the fence. They like that, Musaidia says. The little ones watch the people and cars going by. Some pedestrians stop on the outside and look at the imprisoned children. An absurd situation. The kids take the hands of their Muzungu and lead him towards a dusty and open space where Eugenie Musaidia plans to build a children's center. After half an hour, the kids are brought back to the front door of the barrack. Loudly, they run into the dark, trying to find their mothers amongst all those women. Shortly after, I'm sitting with Eugenie Musaidia and her helpers on two benches under a tree. Behind us, the prison kitchen, where corn porridge is cooked in huge pots for the 8,000 prisoners. The women start to pray. After a couple of minutes, Eugenie Musaidia asks them to tell me about themselves. One after another begins. Name, reason for incarceration and how long they will be here. One word is repeated over and over again. Genocide. 14, 22, 24, 27 years for life. How do you cope with these circumstances, I'm asking. They are smiling about the question. They know why they are here, one says. We acknowledge our guilt, we atone, and we hope for forgiveness.
20 years ago the Berlin Wall came down. Peacefully the people of the GDR demanded a change. And it came. On the night of November 9th the border between East and West Berlin was opened and there was no way back. In Washington DC an exhibition is remembering this anniversary and the exhibition will probably tour throughout the country. On the phone with me is Marian Deschmuck, history and art history professor at George Mason University and the co-curator of Iconoclash, political imagery from the Berlin Wall to German unification. Mrs. Deschmuck, what is this exhibition all about? Well, rather than simply a narrative about the history of the the construction and ultimate demolition of the wall, um, I was interested in showing how, at the time of the Venda, uh, images that once were venerated, uh, such as portraits of Honecker or Brezhnev, uh, Lenin, Marx, uh, how they quickly became objects of satire uh, and later objects to be bought in flea markets in and around Berlin and elsewhere. And so the theme of the exhibit is really how images transform as a result of political change. So that's the basic theme of the exhibit, and that's what I'm trying to convey uh, at the show. So you're taking products and pictures of the GDR and changing them? Right. And what I've done is I've borrowed... Uh, all the objects that are going to be on exhibit are borrowed from the Venda Museum, which is located in Culver City, California, uh, which is a, a, a city embedded in the greater uh, L.A. metropolitan area. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Venda Museum, but it's an unbelievable uh, place. It's a museum and archive of the Cold War. And what they have done is collect literally thousands of objects, ranging from portraits and oil paintings, uh, to school books, to flags, to chunks of the wall, to statues, to cooking books. I mean, it's just an incredible array of material. And they're, they've collected and archived this material so that researchers can research material culture of the Soviet bloc, a large portion of which deals with the, G, the former GDR. The question I was faced with recently is, how do you interest young people today who haven't even been born in 89 for the fall of the Berlin Wall? Right. It is really very difficult. And I think this is why this program that the um, German Information Center has sponsored, uh, initially I was a bit skeptical, to be honest. But now that I see the reaction of my own students who were not born at the time of the wall, they're, you know, they're 18, 19 years old, or even if they were born and, you know, three, four, five years old, obviously they don't know very much of what happened during the Cold War. By having them actually get involved in activities, uh, such as debates that they would have to research information about what happened, or even spray painting a wall, which they love to do, uh, but it teaches them, well, what was this? And it you know, it kind of gets them more interested. So I think sort of hands-on approach is, is one of the best ways to interest them, and that's what we're trying to do in the classroom as well. But, it, you know, it's, it, it takes some doing. It is a challenge, no question about it. But how do you describe or explain the significance of this night of November 9th, 1989? It's not just the beginning of the German reunification, it's the end of the Soviet bloc, the groundbreaking change of the entire world. Right, and, and for them, because again, it's such a distant past, it could have been the Napoleonic invasions as far as they're concerned, and they don't know much about that either. Uh, so, you know, to tell them that, you know, the way the world is today, it had to 
get to this place? How did it get to this place? Why is it so complicated now? And, you know, 20 years ago, it didn't seem as complicated. There were two superpowers, you know, that were in conflict with one another. And Berlin and the Iron Curtain was at its epicenter. Uh, and so on some level, it was a simpler world. And uh, as a result of the collapse, it's been a much more complicated world. So, it, you know, it, one tries every which way. I think some of the films that have been made recently are good to show in class as well, such as, you know, Goodbye Lenin and Lives of Others and, and some of those classic films. And often students absorb this, you know, in a multimedia way rather than just being told about it. Before the fall of the Berlin Wall, Germany and the U.S. were very much connected. I'm from Bavaria, where the U.S. Army was stationed. How did the fall of the Berlin Wall change this connection? Is it still that close? Yeah, I think it still is very close. I think there, uh, for a variety of reasons, as you say, there were you know hundreds of thousands of soldiers over two generations that were posted in Germany. And so they, many of them have a kind of fond remembrances of their time spent in Germany. So you have that connection, the military connection. Of course, you have the connection of the Allies and NATO and so forth. Uh, but I also think that on some level, because the Germans are going their own way, they've learned uh, an incredibly important lesson of the Second World War, that uh, you know, militarism is not the way to be an effective power. And so I think the fact that the Germans don't always agree, for example, in Iraq, um, was something that was, you know, an important lesson that the Americans, I think, learned through, um, you know, their longstanding relation and on some level mentorship. From your American perspective, as someone who has been following Germany and the reunification for some time, has it all turned out like Americans hoped for? I think it did. I really do. I think it did. I mean, Germany is peaceful. I think there were initial apprehensions. Uh, if you recall, and I don't know how old you are, if you remember the time of the Berlin Wall, but you probably do, um, there were a number of, quote-unquote, very sage advisors, politicians, in the United States, in the U.K., who were worried, uh, you know, a united Germany means a powerful Germany, means instability potentially in Europe. Uh, will she become, you know, a threat, security threat? Uh, the Poles were, uh, were worried as well, and, and there were Americans who shared that sentiment. But in fact, I think that has not happened. The Germans have you know, embedded themselves within the European Union. Uh, they play a major role in, in EU affairs. And I think that, for the most part, I think Americans have been quite pleased with the way things turned out. How did you experience the night of November 9th, 1989? Well, I was here in the, well, I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, our university is in Virginia, Northern Virginia. And uh, like so many other people, I was watching it on TV. Um, But prior to that, uh, I think it was maybe two or three weeks before, uh, I was um, involved in an exhibition that coincidentally was taking place in Atlanta, Georgia, at the High Museum. It was an exhibition called uh, Berlin Art, 1815-1989. And it was at that time when things began to unravel, when you know the protest demonstrations began in Leipzig, on a weekly basis when uh, Egon Krenz was uh, 
uh, finally uh, put in and Honecker out. I mean, things were happening like on an hour-by-hour basis. And that generated so much interest that at the exhibition, they put a, a CNN television monitor in, in the foyer so people can watch what was happening as they were going into this exhibit. And the exhibit became extremely popular and crowded because of the timeliness of what was happening. So I recall that you know I was watching it either from Atlanta and then a few days later from Washington, and you know I think everybody was riveted by the reports. I wish I were in Berlin at that time. Unfortunately, I was not. The 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall is a topic in many newspapers these days. What would you tell young people today what the lessons from these days and events in 1989 are? Well, I think one thing one can tie the whole concept of the wall to, uh, and I tried to do it in a few sentences in the catalog to the exhibition, is that, you know, civilizations have always had walls of one sort or another, if one thinks back to, you know, the Great Wall of China and uh, the walls around uh, Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, uh, that walls have been built uh, to prevent groups that are deemed enemies from, you know, coming into the borders for protecting their own Uh, populations. Their walls being built now between Israel and Palestine, between Mexico and the United States. And the question that I ask is, you know, is this a good idea that we see the benefits of having walls being torn down when we see Berlin? I think Berlin is a wonderful example of kind of the positive aspects of the disappearance of walls. Uh, because I think a united Germany is far better than a divided one, and I think a united Berlin is far better than a divided Berlin. And people coming together, they were really torn asunder on one level, even families and friends, uh, for over a generation, and this is no longer the case. So I think that students should think about you know, the, the concept of the wall as you know, a form of human activity. So I think that's, at least for me, the kind of larger question. I spoke with Marian Deshmuk, history and art history professor at George Mason University and the co-curator of Iconoclash, political imagery from the Berlin Wall to German unification. You can find our show and our free podcast at radiogoethe.org. That was today's program. Thanks for listening. I'm Arndt Peltner. Wo treffen Menschen sich aus Ost und West, aus aller Welt, aus jedem Nest. Wo hat die Liebe das Sagen, feiert glänzende Paraden und die Luft einen ganz besonderen Duft? Wo gibt es eine ganz spezielle Wurst mit Curry drauf, macht Riesendurst? Wo kannst du echte Schnauzen hören, Berliner Kindel nachts betören? Willst du der Welt entfliehen, zieh nach Berlin? Komm, wir ziehen, komm, wir ziehen, komm, wir ziehen nach Berlin, denn da tobt das alle Leben, ja.
Shanghai. Wir wünschen nach dir und Shanghai. 